Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 3 Seeing and hearing are metaphors. So what I want to talk about seeing and hearing, but I want to say they are metaphors. But the second thing I want to say is that they are not metaphors for each other. They are metaphors for two different things. And so it still helps us to see them as juxtaposed to one another, but to recognize that we're talking about a metaphor. We're not talking about literal hearing, literal seeing. But to the extent that envy is invedire, that is to say, invedire means to look upon. Invedere means to look upon in the sense that so many modern philosophers have understood our dilemma as being the dilemma of, as Krishnamurti put it, the observer and the observed. The great gap that has, that has yawned in between the one who's looking on and that on which he's looking and the breakdown of any sense of participation in the world and the whole isolation of the individual. So a way of... And this is associated with the visual sense now. To look on in a certain way that exacerbates the isolation and alienation. So that invadere or envy is a way of seeing, a way of seeing as the world sees, we might say, a habit of seeing. And to, go, to get it to its root, I would like to reflect again on things we've talked about before here, namely when one's dignity and sense of self-worth is not inherent and God-given, but earned, then one's sense of self is something that is won from a grudging social order, not something that is inherent. And so the anxieties are put into place that have to do with the achievement and the maintenance of a sense of self that has to constantly be gotten from outside, that has to be won from the social order and maintained in the light of the scrutiny of the social order, a hard-won sense of self. Everything on this level of purgatory is the color of a bruise. Does that tell you volumes? Everything on this level of purgatory is livid, that is to say, black and blue. It is the color of a bruise. A hard-won sense of self in a very competitive environment in which there's not enough self-esteem for everybody to have some. And if somebody ha else has a large portion, I might suspect that they have some belongs to me. And that maybe I better get there before they do. Okay? I wrote a little poem which will not go down in history, so I'll read it to you now. <laughs> in, <laughs> entitled The Little Bang Theory. Uh, and I'll read the last two stanzas of it. I think I've read it here before. I'm not sure. A pistol full of blanks points at the sun as they cock their bodies and look straight ahead anticipating the split-second sound for which a brotherhood was formed and forfeited. A puff of smoke and the knees and elbow boys bolt blocks before they e I've even heard the crack. For they're closer and more attentive to the noise, and now they're leaping hurdles down the track. 
the sense I was having was of this competitiveness uh, in the cultural milieu in which it is a zero-sum game. So something in scarce supply and uh, it sets in motion a kind of a competitive game from which is very difficult to wake up. And I want to read you a story a story, a, poem, a piece of a poem by Rilke. I have a couple of Rilke poems here today. This is called The Vast Night, and it's, this is a translation by Stephen Mitchell. The question is, how do you wake up from that competitive game? Uh, and, and I think that th those who play the game well and those who play the game poorly have an even chance of waking up. I don't think it uh, is always those who play it poorly that will wake up from it. But in this case, it was somebody who played it poorly, namely Rilke, and he wrote this poem. Like a new boy at school who is finally allowed to join in. But he can't catch the ball. Is helpless at all the games the others pursue with such ease. And he stands there staring into the distance. Where? I stood there and suddenly grasped that it was you. You, grown-up knight were playing with me, and I gazed at you in wonder. The image is, this is so reminiscent to me of things out of Hosea and Jeremiah, and you know I have this thing about the Old Testament prophets. Suddenly, being, looking at the world in that horizontal way where the game is taking place, and the ball goes up in the air, and you look up, and you can't catch it, and it falls down, and you keep looking up. And you discover the vertical dimension of reality in that failure to catch the ball. And everybody else thinks, why didn't he catch it? And you're standing there looking straight up into the sky, and there's nothing to see in the sky. It's a black sky. It's the night sky. And he suddenly realizes, it's you I'm playing with, isn't it? Really. It's not really this other thing, is it? The anxiety of that other thing is, is irrelevant to this game you and I have going. And therein lies the cure of envy. And we'll come back to that at the very end where Dante tells us as much in other terms. The French philosopher Jacques Ellou said, the word cannot reach those who are oriented toward images. And again, he's speaking metaphorically here. But the word cannot reach those who are oriented toward images. In our tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the medium of truth is not the vision but the voice. We have, we hear voices and it's those who hear voices who have vocations. That's what the word means, vocare, is to hear a voice. And so it is the voice that is the source of our, of our sense of true identity and true calling and true purpose and true meaning and significance in life. Speaking metaphorically, it is the voice. And if the, the visual is allowed to predominate over the voice, if the voice is allowed to be drowned out, then we run into all the problems that the Old Testament prophets warned us about when they said, watch out for graven images. 
watch out for the image. If you have, if you bring the image too 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 much into center into the center of the thing, the word will become a caption, and it will no longer be a calling. I say this in a world where, as we have become more and more spiritually uh, desperate in a way, and more and more uh, psychically numb, so to speak. We have turned more and more to the video, uh, and whatever cause and effect relationship there might be in that is uh, yet to be seen. So that the the uh, if if the image or the eye begins to dominate to the extent that it eliminates, I'm speaking metaphorically, to the extent that it eliminates the hearing of the word, then we become more desperate. And the, and the images must be more provocative. The images must, must be more three-dimensional, more kaleidoscopic, more so on and so forth. So the Old Testament prophets said, watch out for the images. The, 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 the stance of religious life, they said, is to hearken. To hearken to the word of the Lord, to listen to the word of the Lord. My, my, favorite of the psalm, my favorite line in all the psalms is, if you hear his voice today, harden not your heart. Robert Lowell, poet Robert Lowell said, belief in God is an inclination to listen. We are called out. The Exodus calls us out. The word for church, ecclesia, means to be called out. We are called out, and we are called out. We have to hear the call, which calls us out, and what it calls us out of is our world view. What it calls us out of is our world view, a particular way of seeing the world that has caused us to stop listening to the voice. Martin Buber's great, great paradigmatic breakdown of the problem for us. It's what he calls the I-it world and the I-thou world. And the, in terms of what we're talking about here today, the I-it world is the world of seeing and being seen. The I-it world is the world of seeing and being seen. And the I-thou world is the world of listening and speaking. I'm speaking metaphorically. I feel like, again, the Old Testament prophets, they, they get caught up in this and they'd have to stop every once in a while and say, thus saith the Lord, unless you, unless you forgot. <laughs> I have to stop and say, I'm speaking metaphorically. Metaphorically. All of this has to do with the fact that invadere comes from the verb to see, to look upon. It means to look upon in a certain way. To cast that cold and nervous and fearful and... Uh, and uh, suspicious eye on the world that it might take something that you want or it might be it might begrudge you something that you need and so on and so forth well is there any way out of that is there an alternative to it here's the the Rilke poem the the other one I wanted to quote to you this is called the turning point I'm not going to quote all of this but uh, portions of it for a long time he attained it in looking, 
stars would fall to their knees beneath his compelling vision. Now, this is, this is so true of us. You see, the, uh, the, the, the technological age, the scientific age, the Enlightenment, or all the rest of it, begins, and this is the great value of vision, which is that it shatters the idols in a way. It begins with Galileo saying to the timid bishops, would you please just look through this thing? <laughs> and they said, no, thank you. <laughs> would you look through here and, and to, break, to break down that worldview? This was vision being used in that other way. Galileo died the year that Newton was born, and Newton became, at least as Blake saw him, the personification of what Blake calls single vision and Newton's sleep. The visual provided that, that uh, function, or could have, with Galileo, I'm speaking metaphorically. But it, when it came to Newton, it, it, became the dom it began to dominate. And it, guess what? It works in the practical order. It works. So, Rilke says, for a long time he attained it in looking. Stars would fall to their knees beneath his compelling vision. And then the, the despotism of the vision takes over. And later on he says, the rumor that there was someone who knew how to look stirred those less visible creatures, stirred the women. They held out as long as they could. When he whose vocation was waiting, vocation is to hearken, to hear that voice, was waiting, sat far from home, the hotel's distracted, unnoticing bedroom, moody around him, and in the avoided mirror once more the room, and later from the tormenting bed once more, then in the air, the voices discussed beyond comprehension his heart, which could still be felt, debated what through the painfully buried body could somehow be felt his heart, debated and passed their judgment that it did not have love, and denied him further communications. For there is a boundary to looking, and the world that is looked at so deeply wants to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done now. Go and do heart work on all the images imprisoned within you. He calls that the turning point, and it turns and then begins to consult the images within. So the alternative to the graven image is the poetic image. That is, an image which has been dipped in the images within, 
It is not solely an image without, but somehow comes from that deep place within or associates with that deep place within. And so we must always use the image. The very, the very Bible which so often has the critique of the image from start to finish, from start to finish. They say to Jesus, give us a sign, a sign. And he says, the only sign is the sign of Jonah. Jonah is the one who would not listen. Don't talk about signs. See? At the end of the Gospel of John, he says to Thomas, you saw and you believed, so oh, good for you. But blessed are those who have not seen. It's all the way through. In the Old Testament, so much of that of reservation about the image. But we have to have the image. The very book that has all this reservation about the image is one great anthology of images. Poetic images, narrative images. So it is a question of a particular way of seeing the world that distorts it. But we must have that capacity with us to turn now and look at that inner image. So the poet W.S. Graham wrote, Uneasy, lovable man, give me your painting hand to steady me taking the word road home. We need that image, that capacity to shape something in an image. But it is always associated with taking the word road home. And when it's in that association, it comes to its most powerful expression. Think of Chagall. I don't know why Chagall comes into my head right this moment, but I just saw some Chagall paintings on that wall over there when I said it. Chagall in so many ways embodies that. Embodies these lines. Uneasy, lovable man, give me your painting hand to steady me taking the word road home. To teach me how to listen. The vision is always associated with the future. We have visionaries. And uh, we want to know if somebody has any vision. And so the vision has to do with the future. But it's the word road home that the poet is talking about here. Something that is home, the place we're trying to get to, but also the place where we've come from. It involves a beginning that is an end. And I'll, as, as you know, T.S. Eliot is the one that said the most about that. Here are three separate lines from three separate places in the four quartets. The end is where we start from. Home is where one starts from. In my beginning is my end. So somehow it is, the, the word religion is relegare, to bind back, to go back to look back and to go back to where the conclusion will be.
to, to know the place for the first time. And vision doesn't have that, that paradox or that ambiguity to it. It's, it thrusts too much into the future. Well, the question then is, what does that have to do? Does, does, does Dante say anything about that? Well, he says the following to the, to the uh, penitents here uh, in Canto 13, line 85 and following. He says, you, you can be certain of see, excuse me, you who can be certain of seeing that high light which is the only object of your longing, may in your conscience all impurity soon be dissolved by grace so that the stream of memory flow through it limpidly. This is a very strange and gratuitous uh, little reference here. That the envious have to have their, their habitual uh, malady cured so that the stream of memory can flow again. Envy blocks the stream of memory. The thing about words that makes them so, oh, what shall I say, boring, is that everything worth saying has already been said. And we somehow understand that. What we don't understand is that the trick is to recreate the original primal condition in which we fully heard it. But everything we're saying has already been said. But there are always new things to be seen. So if we are hungry for something, it's much more... I'm mixing metaphors to say hungry. If we're in need of something, it's much more likely in our time, particularly where novelty is a big item, for us to look for it. First of all, looking for it is a much more active approach, and we're given to that kind of activism. Rilke says the vocation is waiting. Waiting, which is very close to listening. Dante says, the memory is clogged by envy. That way of seeing prevents us from remembering something. One of the dynamics, I think, of this, of this overall thing we're calling envy here is that I'm after something, or at least that's what I tell myself. My life is frenetic and fearful and uh, nervous, it's easier to say I'm reaching for something than to admit that I'm running from something. And to me that has to do with the fact that the memory is clogged. It ha it's a little image there of repression. In Canto 14, one of the the envious who's being purged, Guido del Duca, says to Dante, or he says to the atmosphere, so to speak, O humankind, why do you set your hearts there where our sharing cannot have a part? And that's as puzzling to Dante as it is to us. And so later on in Canto 15, Dante asked Virgil, what did he mean by that? And Virgil says this, lines 49 and following, when your longings center on things such that sharing them apportions less to each, 
then envy stirs the bellows of your size. It's just that, that envy is simply that's going to happen. There's no moral effort will save you from envy if you make that particular slip up. But if the love within the highest sphere should turn your longings heavenward, the fear inhabiting your breast should disappear. Now note what it's based on, fear. If you could look heavenward in that vertical dimension we mentioned before with the Rilke poem, then the fear that you're going to lose at the little, you know, at the little game at the social order level will go away. For there, the more there are who would say ours, so much the greater is the good possessed by each. And Dante says, huh? What did you mean by that? And he says, Dante says, how can a good that's shared by more possessors enable each to have more, excuse me, enable each to be more rich in it than if that good had been possessed by few? Basic arithmetic course here. And Virgil explains line 70 and following of Canto 15. Where ardor is, that good gives of itself. And where more love is, there that good confers a greater measure of eternal worth. And when there are more souls above who love, there's more to love well there. And they love more, and mirror-like, each soul reflects the other. Now, these two tercets are, in, I'm told, in the Italian, something to behold, and they are, I think, also something to behold in the Dorothy Sayers translation, although the, the, the translation has a little arcane ring to it. Uh, I think it conveys something, so I'd like to read it to you. Speaking now of that, of that divine good, she says, Lavish of self, all fires it finds it feeds. I love that line. Lavish of self, all fires it finds it feeds. And thus, as charity yet rifer runs, rifer thereby the immortal vigor breeds. The more enamored souls dwell there at once, ever the better and the more they love, each glassing each, all mirrors and all suns. The image is one of those of, uh, it's a little bit like the candle. You have a lighted candle and I take a light off of it. It doesn't take a thing away from the light that you're carrying. It just makes, it doubles the light in the room, that's all. So this mirroring image is that kind of a thing. It's the kind of good that the more it is shared, the more there is of it. Lavish of self, all fires it finds it feeds. And everything warms up and everything gets lighter and brighter as a result of that kind of sharing. It's a different economy. It's a different economy. Now the key to this is the longing. A longing for that which is worthy of our longing, which cannot be diminished by sharing it. And that's the only cure for envy. There is no moral effort that will cure envy save for that. At least that's what this poem said. The cure for envy is that. And no little 
attempt to clean your act up morally that doesn't do this will do it. And I think also that the amazing thing about this is that the longing is the first installment of the blessing for which one longs. The longing itself is already a, a, a foretaste of the blessing. And that word enamored souls is, is I think, an important. That's a great word for what's being described here. The more enamored souls dwell there at once, ever the better and the more they love. Each glassing each, all mirrors and all suns. On the, on the subject of enamored, I'd like to conclude with a little uh, few lines from a Yeats poem called Vacillation, and like so many of these, I've quoted this here before. But it reflects on, for me, much that we talked about here today. And it has to do with this redirection of one's longing from outside of that social order to some larger longing and what it does to one's sense to the sense of community suddenly the sense of community is enriched by the fact that i've i've touched that vertical dimension of things at least that's how this poem speaks to me so this is yeats a few lines from the poem vacillation by yeats my 50th year had come and gone I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, with an open book and empty cup on a marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, it seemed, so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. Solitary, isolated, looking, and all of a sudden, 20 minutes, this is about the way it is, you know, 20 minutes, he was in that kind of longing, which is the blessing, and, uh, he was blessed and could bless. And what I get from this poem so much is that sudden sense of community. And so maybe if we're lucky, if we're as lucky as Yeats was, uh, we get these little 20-minute exposures to that realm of being occasionally. We pick up the story with Dante and Virgil on the ledge of purgatory where the wrathful are being purged of their sin and the, what they notice is that there is a great cloud of smoke that they must enter, dark black smoke, which is the place where wrath is being purged and the knot of wrath is being loosened. And they uh, run into Marco of Lombard, and who's a curious uh, historically, uh, not much is known about Marco of Lombard, but anyway, they run into him, and he allows us how the world is in a mess, and Dante uh, agrees that the world is in a mess and Dante asks Marco why so? Why is this so? Uh, is it because 
it is fated to be so, destined to be that way, or is it because we human beings have lost our way and are behaving wickedly for some other, uh, some other cause? And Marco says, the world is blind and you have come from the world. Beautiful sentence, I think, saying uh, you, have, you have posed the wrong question. And then in the course of his answer, he alludes to a deep contradiction inherent in any historical enterprise based on even a remote descendant of first century Christianity. And what I'd like to do is to spend a moment or two on that contradiction uh, or on that dilemma more than on the sin of wrath. Uh, although we may we may want to say a thing or two about the sin of wrath. Marco says this, issuing, he's speaking of the birth of the soul, issuing from his hands the soul on which he thought with love before creating it is like a child who weeps and laughs in sport. That soul is simple, unaware, but since a joyful maker gave it motion, it turns willingly to things that bring delight. At first it savors trivial goods. These would beguile the soul, and it runs after them until there's guide or rein to rule its love. Excuse me, unless there's guide or rein to rule its love. Therefore, one needed law to serve as curb and ruler too was needed. One who could discern at least the tower of the true city. The true city be, being the Augustinian city of God versus the city of man. So the ruler in the city of man must be able to at least see the outline of the city of God. The laws exist, but who applies them now? No one. The shepherd and again, he's getting his licks in with uh, Boniface VIII, who's his mortal enemy, the Pope who represents everything evil to Dante practically. The shepherd who precedes his flock can chew the cud but does not have cleft hooves, can, can mouth the scriptural wisdoms. Uh, but the absence of cleft hooves here is uh, either he cannot discern good and evil or more likely in this context, he has no appreciation for the natural division between secular and sacred authority, and so tries to usurp authorities that are not rightfully his. And thus the people who can see their God snatch only at that good for which they feel some greed would feed on that and seek no further. Misrule, you see, has caused the world to be malevolent. The cause is clearly not celestial forces. They do not corrupt. So the problem is misrule. And what is the nature of the misrule? For Rome, which made the world good, used to have two suns. And they made visible two paths. The world's path and the pathway that is God's. Namely, the, the, uh, the two seats of authority, the, the empire and the church, representing in generic terms the keeper of the practical truths of life and the keeper of the paradoxical or prophetic truths of life. And that for Dante, they must always be kept, uh, if not separate, clearly not separate, but distinct authorities. They, they um, have influence over a world that is one world, so they cannot be kept completely separate, but they should be, as authorities, kept distinct. And then he says, each has eclipsed the other, now the sword, which is the empire, has joined the shepherd's crook 
no pun intended, that's only in English, the shepherd's crook being the, the Bishop of Rome's staff, representing his authority. The two together must of necessity result in evil, because so joined, one need not fear the other. And then a few lines later on, he says, The church of Rome confounds two powers in itself. Into the filth it falls and fouls itself in its new burden. So the problem is misrule, and the nature of the misrule is that these two uh, distinct authorities have been commingled inappropriately by the self-aggrandizement of the, of the current occupant of the papacy uh, and those of his ilk. That's the historical particulars, but then what we want to look, we want to ask ourselves, is that simply a medieval curiosity unique to Dante, or does it still exist for us? And I would like to suggest that it does exist for us, uh, and that the contradiction and the, and the contrast and so on are still very much a part of us. But first of all, to go back to early Christianity, the very beginnings of the Christian movement, the early Christians were convinced that the death and resurrection was uh, the first sign of an impending uh, end of history, that history was coming to an end. And they understood that, or most of them at least, understood that temporally, that history was coming to an end temporally. Uh, the insight that they had hold of, the deep validity of the insight they had hold of, was that the dynamic of history had been revealed for what it really is in the crucifixion. And in that sense, history had come to an end. That it had been, the, the word apocalypse means, is the Greek word for revelation. Uh, the nature of history had been revealed. That was the apocalypse. Uh, but they began to understand it, as most have and do, uh, in temporal terms, because the te temporal does have something to do with that mystery. And so they expected the mo any moment now, the end of history, the end of time, the end of this world, the breaking in, this is right out of the Jewish apocalyptic literature, the breaking in, the decisive and final breaking in by the divine into the human order. Uh, and so they renounced the world, not because of any moral effort or scruples on their part so much, but in the same way that one would abandon the sinking ship. It was about to be concluded. And to, and to busy oneself with its concerns was a total waste of time, ludicrous waste of time. They were, they were absolutely uninterested in political and cultural affairs because that whole operation was about to disappear. The, uh, the parallel in our time is that uh, instructions that invited by the civil defense authorities from the post office about what to do with change of address forms and time of a nuclear disaster. Uh, they would have regarded, first century Christians would have regarded uh, any concern with tinkering with the, with the political or social order as being something akin to that. It was too late for that. Time passed and it didn't happen. And as time passed and it didn't happen, the proclamation, the theological assertion or the doctrinal assertion about that event underwent very naturally, a transformation. Did it undergo a weakening or a strengthening? Well, that's the interesting point. Under, as time passed, the church, the early church, more was submitted more and more to Greek influence. 
so there was more and more of an of a tendency to express some of the some of the doctrines in in terms of Greek thinking, and Greek thinking was uh, the the real ethereal situation and the less real material situation. That is that's completely foreign to the to the Hebrew imagination, but it was part of the Greek imagination. So what came in was instead of history's coming to an end, the reign of God's going to begin. This life will terminate and another life will be uh, lived in its beyond it. This is not altogether foreign from the original proclamation, but it became to, it came to dominate in the absence of any historical material breaking in uh, or noticeable breaking in of the divine into the human world. And as this change happened, uh, something happens to the nature of the Krigma. And I quote two, two people I quote here is George Santayana and uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, both of whom have thought about these issues and have thought about them pretty much in terms that Dante would have thought about them, I think. Speaking of this early change in first century Christianity, Santayana says, Morally there is a loss because men will never take so hotly what concerns another life as what concerns this one. Speculatively, on the other hand, there is a gain. For the expectation of total transformations and millenniums on earth is a very crude illusion. While the r relation of the soul to nature is an open question in philosophy, and there, there will always be a great loftiness and poetic serenity in the feeling that the soul is a stranger in this world and has other destinies in store. So just because the church had to back off from the sense of a immediate temporal breakthrough uh, of this other existence did not mean that it was a theological loss. I'd like to point, since as Teilhard says, the hardest thing to put your finger on is the, is the beginning, to, to chapter 6 of the Acts of the Apostles as a place where we can begin to see some of this happening. In chapter 6, uh, the uh, early church is crit critiqued by its critics for not taking care of the widows, which in a, many ways is a generic way of saying it was not dealing with the material welfare. Uh, taking care of the widows was, was, a, was an ancient uh, uh, responsibility that's alluded to many times in the Hebrew Scriptures as one of the things one has to do in life. And the early church is being critiqued for not minding the material welfare of its, of its people. And so the twelve gather the community together and they say this to them, you brothers must select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. We will hand over this duty to them and continue to devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. So there is a, there is a slight little bifurcation here, a little division into those who will take care of the welfare, uh, temporal, material welfare, and those who will continue to preach the word. And of course, there is a contradiction that's not pointed out here. Because the word is, is saying that all of that is, has now been rendered, uh, um, if not totally irrelevant, uh, considerably so. So there is a tension in this that maybe is not uh, appreciated at the very beginning. Perhaps it is. Uh, it's nowhere near the place where, uh, which, where Kafka reached uh, some many hundreds of years later. Kafka remarked the following, The Messiah will come only when he is no longer needed. 
He will come only on the day after his arrival. He will come not on the last day, but on the very last. That is to say that uh, we, by doing the work of, of supplying the welfare, the, need, the, the needs of the people at, at the material level, we will be the Messiah. Well, it's a long way to there, and that would be uh, displacing an important part of the Christian kerygma. Uh, but I mention it simply because it, it's in the same, it is part of the same issue that's being raised. The rejection of the world, which is very much part of the early Christian movement, is not a rejection of the planet Earth or of material life, biological life. Rejection of the world is a rejection of the zeitgeist. It's a rejection of the, of the uh, paradigmatic consensus. It's a rejection of a worldview. It's a rejection of a way of experiencing one's life. That is really the rejection of the world. The unquestioned assumptions uh, that allow us to mechanically go through the process. The proclamation that calls the paradigmatic consensus... So I would like to... In place of the word world, I'd like to substitute the word, even though it's a mouthful and it's kind of corny, I'd like to use the word paradigmatic consensus. A, par- a paradigm is a is a unconscious, uh, assumed picture of the world or of the or, or of the world order, which al- in, in which the rules are presented and I know sort of how to operate. The criti- the proclamation. Christian proclamation calls the paradigmatic consensus into question. And that the voice that calls it into question is weakened if the one issuing the call is also tinkering with the paradigm. That is to say, somebody if somebody who issues the call is also uh, working within that paradigm uh, to make a marginally significant uh, changes or is working on a new one, which of course will be just as flawed as the old one, so that any, to, to really call that into question and at the same time to work within its parameters is, a, is, is, uh, is not, a, perhaps may not be a full-blown contradiction, but is, uh, is it, it, the two impulses are in tension with each other. People have tried to delicately uh, work around this tension I always remember this line from Camus, which doesn't go quite like this, but the sense of it is this. He says, if, there, if it is true that we live by bread and heather, and if it's also true that presently bread is more urgent, let us go about the business of getting our bread in such a way as to keep the memory of heather alive. Well, that was, that was the best Camus could, that's the best he could do with wrestling this problem out. Um, But Santayana points out that it is that there is a contradiction that cannot be solved very easily. Here's how he explains it: an anti-worldly religion, and I remember that doesn't mean anti-earth or anti-biological life. In its deepest sense, it means it means that which calls the zeitgeist into question. An anti-worldly religion finds itself, in fact, in this dilemma: if it remains merely spiritual, developing no material organs, it cannot affect the world. While if it develops organs with which to operate on the world, these organs become a part of the world from which it is trying to wean the individual spirit 
so that the moment it is armed for conflict, such a religion has two enemies on its hands. It is stifled by the necessary armor and adds treason in its members to hostility in its foes. The passions and arts it uses against its opponents are as fatal to itself as those which its opponents array against it. A contemporary example of that is that admirers of the Western ideals often find themselves in league with the defenders of the Western interest. Uh, and uh, that's an embarrassing uh, situation to find yourself in sometimes. Well, the, inter the inner contradiction of these two uh, responsibilities, the responsibility to the timeless truth and the responsibility to the timely needs, the inner contradiction in these two, in this situation, has colored all of uh, Christian social action. I'm using Christian here. I don't think it is, this is particularly unique to Christianity, although I do think it is unique to the, what you might call the historical religions, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity, uh, because they take history as a, as, as a medium in which the divine has an interest. Uh, so it may be unique to those traditions. But in any case, this inner contradiction has colored the, the social action uh, in, in the Christian tradition at least, and I think elsewhere as well. Christianity has been more frequent. excuse me, I'm now quoting from Reinhold Niebuhr. Christianity has been more frequently a source of confusion in political and social ethics than a source of insight and constructive guidance. Among the many possible causes of this failure of Christianity in politics, the most basic is the tendency of Christianity to destroy the dialectic of prophetic religion, either by sacrificing time and history to eternity or by giving ultimate significance to the relativities of history. Christian orthodoxy chose the first alternative and Christian liberalism the second. The problems of politics were confused by the undue pessimism of the Orthodox Church and the undue sentimentality of the liberal church. It's a way of trying to work our way out of the contradiction, to ease off to one side or another of it and not be right there in the middle of it. Apropos of the liberal alternative, George Santayana says, for Christianity in its... First, let make a point. When Niebuhr, when Niebuhr speaks of the ultimate significance uh, of the relativities of history, one thinks of a uh, something he said someplace about the false prophet is the one who who uh, transforms religious hope into political malcontent. Uh, it's a way of getting it all in one side. It's a way of moving it from from these two contradictory polar places to try to get it over on one side or the other. Well, the liberal solution, if I can call by the way, liberal here doesn't mean liberal doesn't mean Republican Democrats kind of liberal. It, liberal the liberal solution really is the classical liberalism, the mainstream Ronald Reagan being the mainstream, classical liberalism. Uh, Santiana says, for Christianity in its essence and origin was an urgent summons to repent and come out of just such a worldly life as modern liberty and progress hold up as an ideal to the nations. That something so self-indulgent and worldly as this ideal of liberalism could have been thought compatible with Christianity, the first in initiation into which, in baptism, involves renouncing the world, might well astonish us 
have we not been rendered deaf to moral discords by the very din which from our birth they have been making in our ears? <clears throat> we hardly notice the contradiction anymore because it has been blended. Now, that's Dante's problem. That's what Dante's saying. That is when we fall into misrule, Dante says. Of course, when Dante's talking about the universe, he is not talking about simply the political cosmos, but the whole cosmos. And misrule would be to, uh, to lose that creative tension between the eternal truths and, and the timely needs. Well, Niebuhr talks about sacrificing time and history to eternity, and, and Santayana's comment about the orthodoxy might be the following. To divorce, then, as the modernists do, the history of the world from the story of salvation and God's government and sanctions of religion from the operation of matter is a fundamental apostasy from Christianity. The other solution is to keep them absolutely separate and to let the religious tradition go along blithely just taking care of the eternal verities and defending them from uh, you know, the passing uh, ebb, ebb and flow of, of, uh, of uh, you know, cultural life and letting somebody else take care of, of the needs of the temporal order. And Santayana says that is, an, that is apostasy to Christianity because it m must be about that business of dealing with the needs, as Acts six of, I mean, uh, chapter six of the Acts of the Apostles, taking care of the widows. So the contradiction is there. Now Dante and it is a, if we experience it, is it it can be a profound contradiction. Dante's symbol of the way things ought to be is that there used to be two sons. <clears throat> The existence of two sons is, in moder modern uh, psychotherapy, a very dangerous um, turn of events in someone's life, the discovery that there are two sons. In Euripides' uh, the, the Bacchae, Pentheus, the young king who was finally killed by Dionysus, is driven mad, and the symptom of his madness is that he sees two sons. So that Dante would regard two sons as the healthy situation symbolically indicates how wrenching this contradiction can be. But it is there. It doesn't go away, even though we try to have it be one or the other. Santayana says, in a nation that calls itself Christian, the nominal Christian become a man of business and a head of a family, will form an integral part of that very world which he would pledge his children to renounce in turn as he holds them over the font, the baptismal font. That's the inner contradiction of it. And Dante is wise enough not to try to sweep the contradiction away and to resolve it in some way that will not last. He simply says we have two loyalties. And they are incompatible. They're oil, oil and water, but we have them anyway. And the deepest statement of this mystery I know is Niebuhr's a statement that goes like this. And this is a one of those sentences that one would have to read about 20 times even begin to get its depth. Man will never be able to divorce his reason from his organic relation with the natural impulse of survival 
with which nature has endowed him. And he will never be able to escape the sin of accentuating his natural will to live into an imperial will to power by the very protest which his yearning for the eternal tempts him to make against his finiteness. I don't even think I want to stop and talk about that sentence, except I, I want to, as they say uh, in the legal field, I want to get it on the record. But it is filled with, it is almost a celebration of the contradictions, the deep contradictions in us. And the reason it might be a celebration of them is that the paradoxical truth, or the keepers of the paradoxical truth, if they understood these things, would realize that they have a stake in maintaining the contradiction as conscious. In other words, they have a stake in keeping the contradiction conscious. It's on, the contradiction will exist one way or another. It will either be unconscious or conscious. And the keepers of the paradoxical truth have a stake in keeping it conscious. Because only if it's kept conscious will those in whom it is kept conscious have an opportunity to have it open out into paradox. Only by keeping the contradiction conscious can it possibly be experienced at some point as a paradox. And so the keepers of the paradoxical truth have that stake in keeping it conscious and not sweeping it under. One way, the Stoics, you see, would say, let's have a balance between these two things. Uh, I think of Chesterton. There's a line in one of Chesterton's books where he talks about, uh, the, about the difference, I guess, I think it's the difference between the Aristotelian mean and the, and the Christian cross. You, the Stoics would, uh, would try to have a nice little balance with this thing. And, uh, and, uh, but the Christian response is to, is, to, is to let them come into their full contradictory potential. And that, that is, and that is where they will be revealed and, and uh, expressed in their most powerful way. So Dante did not let them uh, get unified into one thing or isolated or he didn't settle for an easy division of them or an easy blending of them, but insisted that they be held in tension. And that insistence brings rich possibilities with it. Uh, again, the last quote I'll share with you is from Reinhold Niebuhr. Christian universalism, therefore, represents a more impossible possibility than the universalism of Stoicism. Uh, Niebuhr's final resolution of this and many other contradictions in, in Christian uh, cosmology is that the whole thing, finally, says Niebuhr, is an impossible possibility. And if you remember it is an impossible possibility, it will, you, will, you will avoid the temptation to reduce one of the aspects of the awareness, to sacrifice one of the poles of the, of the tension in order to have it be more intelligible to you. Uh, Niebuhr says it is an impossible possibility. And then he goes on to say that the Christian uh, uh, universalism is a more impossible possibility than the Stoicism. That is to say, it is, it is more impossible possibility than the Stoic one. But then he goes on to say, yet it is able to prompt higher actualities of love 
being less dependent on obvious symbols of human unity and brotherhood. It can take wave on wave on wave of historical bad news, uh, failures, uh, so on and so forth, without being debilitated by it. Because it doesn't premise itself on any kind of shallow optimism or any kind of hope that, well, if you do this and this, it'll all work out. It's not based on the idea that it will all work out at all. It's based on some other... It's based on the understanding that the cross is the symbol of full life. I mean, one, I mean the cross is... The cross is, is, the, is the point... You know, physicists talk about um, the collision of matter and antimatter. Um, and if, and um, what happens when you have the collision between matter and antimatter? Well, if you think of the cross as the collision between life and death, um, the um, the resurrection is a is uh, something more interesting than the victory of one over the other. It's something more something deeper than that, more mysterious than that. It represents that transcendent function. The uh, first person I know that actually came out and said this is Aeschylus. He said this: the the only we can only come to knowledge through suffering. There's no other way to come to knowledge through suffering. The suffering is the suffering of those tensions in us, uh, and. Um, and I think the recognition that 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 is the that's the way it works, or or in other words, that little children's book I remember the title of which was "Is not supposed to work." It's not supposed to work. It's not supposed to work in the usual sense. We think well, we'll just get an answer to it. So to, to conclude that and try to just to summarize it in a way just call attention to the fact that that Christian sensibilities awaken typically. Now I'm thinking, for instance, of, of the base communities in Central South America or the, the, little, um, uh, the little sort of living room kind of churches that are having to subsist under tyrannous... Uh, conditions here, there, and yon around the world. Christian sensibilities awaken uh, under conditions which are abhorrent to Christian morality and which Christian social ethics rightly tries to eliminate. So the very stuff that awakens the Christian sensibility is the stuff that Christian social action must try to eliminate. And there is simply no way of have getting off the horns of that dilemma. I mean, anybody who would say, well, we need poverty and oppression in order for people to c- come to realize. I mean, middle-class America is not discovering much about it as far as I'm concerned. Um, I don't want to be too trendy that way either but I mean it's I, I think it is true that there is under those circumstances that s- some of these awarenesses can begin 
But we want to get rid of those circumstances. I don't want anybody to be poor or oppressed. What, are, what am I doing? Creating a middle-class world in which, in which, you know, what's left of Christian awareness is, is some little trip to church on Sunday morning? It's a contradiction. That's all. It's just a contradiction. And I think it's implicit in, even though we've, I've drawn more, you know, strands out from this thing than, than perhaps are justified, I think it's implicit in Dante's insistence that the church not try to swallow up uh, and, and uh, absorb this other concern, and that the state not try to swallow up and absorb the interest of the paradoxical thing. That it's on the ledge of wrath may have a, a, something to do with this tendency to suppress one of the poles of a contradiction. Yeah. And then whatever it is, and, uh, and then it just steeps there, accrues to itself affects of one kind or another. The affect that's, or not the, well, I guess the affect, the, the spin on, the, on wrath is resentment. As you know, I have this, uh, I, all, I see this so, I mean, every time I open my eyes, I see this in my, li- in my own life and the world around me. And that is that given the choice between uh, dealing with a genuine drama and a melodrama. We'd choose melodrama any day. And melodrama is one in which one of those is going to win. See? And a genuine drama is much more interesting than that. And and maybe that's maybe that's how we can see wrath to some extent because wrath is simply, you know, the, the provocation to wrath is... That I mean, people are the provocations exist. Uh, the question is, do I seize upon it and nurse it? You know, the wrath. The Dante's really underscoring the resentfulness of wrath, nursing that resentment, and plotting to get even, and all of that. That's really it. It's the same same provocations affect everybody. And the wrathful of those who seize upon those provocations in order to invest their lives, or our lives, let's say, with what appears to be drama, but in fact is a, is a sham. It's a melodrama because it's premised on the idea that somebody's going to, one of those two poles is going to win and the other one's going to lose. And I think that's, I mean, that's really the, the historical delusion of the, the history that the cross destroyed was the history based on melodrama. And, uh, and wrath is simply one of the emotions that keeps that melodrama going. Keeps us, it's like flypaper. It's the, kind of, it's the stuff that keeps us you know, connected with it, stirred up by it.